It's Wednesday, July 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. With the concerning Delta variant of COVID-19 and surging cases of infection, many public health officials think that tactics need to change to increase vaccination rates. Vaccine mandates have been talked about, but the government and many businesses have not gone that way yet. Many health experts think that could change once the FDA grants full approval to the current vaccines. Shannon Pettypiece, senior White House reporter at NBC News Digital, joins us for why mandates could be on their way. Next, we have seen a rise in alcohol use disorder, but too often, medical professionals are failing to treat it. There are some medications that can help treat alcoholism, but doctors often fail to prescribe them. Many doctors are not specifically trained to treat addiction and usually refer people to mental health experts or send patients to rehab. Anahad O'Connor, health reporter at the New York Times, joins us for how many alcoholics do not get treatment. Finally, in the age of the pandemic workplace and hybrid working models, everything has become a meeting. We are now in the age of the never-ending check-in. Meetings have gotten shorter, but more frequent, and it could be leading to meeting burnout. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And the language in that statute, which sort of is designed for something that is to be deployed in a sort of emergency setting, once we get out of that, then they think companies, organizations, institutions, even state and local governments are going to feel more comfortable putting some vaccine requirements in place. Joining us now is Shannon Pettypiece, senior White House reporter at NBC News Digital. Thanks for joining us, Shannon. Sure. Wanted to talk about vaccine mandates. You know, we've been seeing a lot of stuff happening with COVID recently. Cases are surging. Vaccine hesitancy is increasing. And we've talked about vaccine mandates for some time. There's some companies are requiring it. Most are not just yet. But there could be a full approval for the Pfizer vaccine by the FDA pretty soon. And some public health experts think that could be the thing that pushes us over the edge where mandates would start coming. So, Shannon, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. So far, we have seen colleges and universities, actually quite a few, several hundred of them, put in place requirements for their students, some of them put in place requirements for their staff to get vaccinated. There have been a handful of companies. We've seen like Delta Airlines and United Airlines requiring vaccinations for new employees, but not current employees. So while we have seen some mandates put in place, and so far they've been held up in the courts, the limited number that there have been, when I talked to public health officials, including those who had been in the Biden administration and the Obama administration, they said that they expect to see a lot more mandates, requirements of various levels starting to go into place once these vaccines are in this full FDA approval phase and out of this emergency youth authorization. And while those public health experts, as well as doctors, members of the current administration say that they fully expect the FDA is going to approve these vaccines, give them the full approval and the data and the safety so far in the real world and the clinical studies, there's every indication they say that these vaccines are safe and effective. They believe that once we get out of this emergency youth authorization phase, And the language in that statute, which sort of is designed for something that is to be deployed in a sort of emergency setting, once we get out of that, then they think companies, organizations, institutions, even state and local governments are going to feel more comfortable putting some vaccine requirements in place. Yeah, Pfizer says they think they'll get full approval by January 2022. 
I guess the FDA commissioner said that they could make a decision well before then. So, you know, we'll see how all of that plays out. But when it comes to actually mandating, let's say full approval goes through all that, and then we start getting into some mandates, it's different because the federal government can only do so much mandating federal employees, and then everything else is going to have to be done on the local level, state and local governments. You know, from the federal government, they are the biggest employer in the U.S., so they could require all federal employees get vaccinated. One former Biden administration official I talked to said, well, rather than really a blanket federal employee requirement, we could see something like members of the military be required to get vaccinated and members of the military are required to get certain vaccines. Currently, we could see VA workers at VA hospitals and nursing homes be required to get vaccinated or maybe even federal workers who have a lot of close contact with the public like airport screeners. So once there is that full FDA approval, everything could be on the table and we could see the federal government reassess its strategy. On the state level, there are a number of states, about 20, that either have passed legislation or are considering legislation that would ban any sort of vaccine mandates or requirements, even for companies. So state legislatures are trying to get out ahead of this. But in the states that haven't or the states that don't pass regulations, the door is still open to companies that want to mandate the vaccine for their workers or for their customers, for concert goers. And then you get down to the level of local governments that would want to mandate it for schools. That type of thing, health experts say, expect to be on the table once we get this final FDA approval. You know, a lot of people feel that it's time for tactics to change. You know, for a while, the Biden administration has been focusing on trying to make the vaccinations just readily accessible, spreading as much information as they can about it, fighting the misinformation. But that's only getting us so far as we've seen, right? We've kind of plateaued, at least it seems, with people wanting to get vaccinations. And this could be that next phase of it. As I said, these tactics need to evolve throughout the whole thing. Right. The number of vaccinations that are being administered every day has really slowed. It's dropped by about 50 percent from where we were in June when the administration said they were redoubling their efforts and making a big push. So the number of daily doses being administered keeps going down and down. And while there has been a lot of progress, you've got about still one in three people who are eligible for the vaccine who haven't even gotten their first dose yet. So to get to that next population, the administration says they're going to continue trying to get accurate information out to folks, trying to make the vaccine as accessible and available as possible. But like I said, one of the former Biden administration officials I talked to said that adding a requirement could help push those people who haven't felt like they needed it. Maybe they feel like they're not in a high risk group. It hasn't been a priority to them. If now all of a sudden they're required to have a vaccine to go to a concert or for their job, for that matter, then you could see an extra wave of people step up and get vaccinated. But of course, fully expect, yes, for there to be others who resist that and for there to continue to be lawsuits and pushback against those type of efforts. Shannon Pettypiece, senior White House reporter at NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There are interventions like therapy and counseling that can help, and yet most people are just not getting the help that they need. Even though alcohol abuse is one of the most common forms of substance abuse in America and, you know, a leading cause of preventable death. Joining us now is Anahad O'Connor, 
health reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Anahad. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about alcohol abuse, uh, also known as alcoholism. You know, it's on the rise right now, but what we're seeing is that oftentimes doctors are failing to treat it for a variety of reasons. These people will come into clinics and hospitals, but whether they're ignoring it or they feel like they're not capable of dealing with addiction properly, you know, a lot of times these people fail to get the help that they need. Um, I think we have some roughly 17 million Americans that grapple with alcoholism right now. So, Anahad, tell us what we're seeing with all of this. Yeah, so it's a really big problem. So, you know, like you said, there's something like 17 million Americans that have some form of alcoholism, you know, on a spectrum from mild to severe. And there was a recent study that found that about 80% of people who have alcohol abuse disorder actually interface with the healthcare system. So they go and see primary care doctors or, you know, OBGYN or, you know, into the emergency room. And uh, in most cases, you know, about 70% of these people are asked about their drinking. And, you know, they disclose, you know, that they are heavy drinkers, they have this problem, but in most cases, they don't get treatment, even though there are a lot of effective treatments for alcoholism. There's several medications that are approved to treat it that can really help people reduce or, you know, or completely quit uh, drinking if they need to. There are interventions like therapy and counseling that can help. And yet most people are just not getting the help that they need, even though alcohol abuse is one of the most common forms of substance abuse in America and, you know, a leading cause of preventable death. Let's talk a little bit about those medications, because I think, you know, the intervention programs and and things like AA is what most people usually think of on ways to treat alcoholism. But there are some medications out there, although those are prescribed very low. As I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of doctors aren't necessarily trained to deal with addiction. So sometimes they don't know if they should be prescribing it, don't want to prescribe it. You know, that becomes an issue of its own. But tell us about some of those medications that we do have out there. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And and part of the problem is that, you know, a lot of doctors feel like they're not equipped to handle substance abuse, whether it's alcohol abuse disorder or another substance abuse disorder. And so oftentimes they will refer people, you know, outside of the medical system to AA or, you know, a rehab center or something like that. And uh, even though these medications don't actually require uh, special, you know, education to prescribe them. And so these medications include, there's an old school one called disulfiram, also known as antabuse where you take it and it, you know, interferes with your body's ability to metabolize alcohol. And so it sort of deters people from drinking. And then there's another medication that's particularly effective known as naltrexone. And what that does is it actually blunts the enjoyment that people get from alcohol and other substances of abuse. And so they, they drink, you know, they might have a drink and they don't enjoy the alcohol as much. They have less much less urge to binge drink, to drink more, to have another drink. They don't get the same buzz. And so that actually helps people cut down substantially on their alcohol abuse. And there's actually, you can take it as a pill or you can actually take it as a monthly injection. And so you get it, you get the injection once and then for the rest of the month, anytime you drink alcohol, you know, there's just not, you know, the same urge or desire to drink heavily. And I interviewed a lot of people who've actually used this medication and found that, you know, it really helped them in some cases cut back or just completely quit alcohol. And when you combine that with behavioral interventions like therapy or counseling, there's a lot of studies showing that it's really effective in helping people quit long term. Because right now, for many people, when they go to AA, for example, that's basically trying to get them to quit cold turkey and to give up alcohol. 
good. And for a lot of people, you know, for some people that works very well, but for other people, it, it doesn't work very well. The relapse rates are like, you know, are, are notoriously high for alcohol uh, abuse. And that's an interesting notion. You talk about how even just dropping back a little bit of the alcohol usage helps a lot. Some of the doctors and public health officials say just a reduction in it helps a lot of times. And one of the barriers that a lot of people have is they think that you have to abstain from alcohol completely. And, you know, obviously that can turn off a lot of people, but just cutting back in a lot of cases helps the body and can improve their, their quality of life without having to abstain completely from it. That, that's kind of one of those confusing parts about it, I guess. This is something where there's a lot of, like you said, confusion and, and misinformation and just a lack of understanding because AA has been around for so long and other 12-step programs like it, where you basically, you know, the goal is to give up alcohol completely. It's sort of thought of something as, as black or white. You know, if you have a drinking problem, either you give up alcohol for good forever or not. You know, there's really no other alternative. Either you drink or you don't. Um, and, and, and it's not but, to diminish the but, good work that they do. It's just that there absolutely. are there are a lot of other options, too. Absolutely. And it, and it works, obviously, very well for many people. It's saved a lot of lives. You know, and for some people, that is what's necessary. You know, and there are people who have severe drinking problems where, you know, they may be very sick and that's, that's really their only option or people who go to AA and give up alcohol for good and they're very happy and it works well. And so it's definitely a great option. But then there are other people, and this seems to be one of the barriers for people not getting treatment for alcohol abuse, is that there are some people who just don't want to quit drinking for good. They want to be able to have a drink right. here or there, you know, to be able to have some wine with their spouse or at a party or something and just be what they consider a normal drinker. And there's a lot of research showing that there's this method of harm reduction that actually can provide benefits. If you're someone who's drinking, you know, 20 drinks a week and you cut down to, you know, five or 10 drinks or whatever, there's studies showing that there's benefit to that. You can improve your blood pressure. You know, you can improve your cardiovascular risk. You can improve your quality of life, your mental health. You know, there's just a lot of benefits. And you can start by just reducing and then reducing further and further until you get to a healthier relationship with alcohol, if that's the route that you want. And uh, these medications can help a lot of people get there. Anahad O'Connor, health reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And then some of it is just logistical. I mean, maybe at the office you could just swivel your chair or you would run into people by the coffee machine and they'd answer a question for you. And now it's like everything has to be scheduled on our calendars. Joining us now is Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about something else we can blame the pandemic on, these never-ending work meetings. During the pandemic, obviously, everybody was having their Zoom meetings, uh, FaceTime meetings, uh, all these different methods of video conferencing. And, uh, you know, it was out of necessity. We had to do that. But now that a lot of people are starting going back to work, a lot of companies are looking at these hybrid models, these uh, quick check-in meetings, uh, meetings that could have just been emails, seem like they might be sticking around. We're, we're seeing more of them. So, Rachel, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with this. You know, I think some of it actually comes from a good place, this kind of like idea of empathetic leadership, like good managers check in with their people. They want to see how they're feeling in these kind of moments of transition, but it becomes really overwhelming for people. So that's kind of one type of check-in. Another type is maybe the micromanager who your boss maybe doesn't trust that you're actually doing what you say that you're doing unless they're kind of checking in 
all of the time. And then some of it is just logistical. I mean, maybe at the office you could just swivel your chair or you would run into people by the coffee machine and they'd answer a question for you. And now it's like everything has to be scheduled on our calendars. From what we've seen throughout the pandemic, the meetings have gotten shorter. You know, nobody wants to be languishing for a long time on these video calls. It kind of it takes a lot of a big toll, basically, on on your brain. It's mentally taxing staying on video for so long. So we've seen these meetings get shorter, but we've seen an increase in these meetings. Then there's been a couple surveys to back up those numbers. Exactly. Yes. There was one piece of research from earlier in the pandemic that found that meetings were like 20% shorter. There are a few other surveys that I found that kind of confirmed this idea of more shorter meetings. And it is really taxing on your brain to kind of go back and forth. And even if it is more efficient, I mean, oftentimes more efficient, it's more intense. So what you're losing is kind of maybe the moments where you were just catching up with a colleague or had a minute to breathe. And instead you have kind of twice as many twice as intense meetings. And then at the end of the day, your to-do list is twice as long as you kind of (laughs) finally have a chance to take stock of all the agenda items. And so what does this do for workflow? We've seen through other numbers that employees have been working more throughout the pandemic. If they're working from home, you know, they tend to put in hours off the clock, things like that. One professor that I talked to estimated employees are working five to eight hours longer per work week during the pandemic. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, people just don't have time to focus. People told me that they needed those early morning hours or late night hours just to feel like they had protected time, like they could actually sit down and do their work. I, I think it all takes a, a toll on folks. And I mean, to be sure, this is not brand new. I wrote about this years ago, kind of meeting overload. There's lots of just bigger trends that have pushed us towards more meetings, whether it's kind of the increasingly global nature of business or you're working on these kind of teams where you have multiple bosses and and multiple colleagues and you're kind of part of different teams in your organization. A lot of this stuff has been going on for a while, but I think the pandemic just kind of made it even worse, if if that makes sense. It pushed us all just to the brink. Do you think that management styles are going to change because of this now or are they going to say try to schedule meetings differently because of this? I mean, you don't want people burning out or, or dreading going into a meeting because it, it'll impact everything everything at the workplace. Part of me wants to believe that because it got so bad during the pandemic, we've been forced to kind of figure out healthier habits. So a lot of companies say they've reduced the length of meetings, which again, as we talked about, maybe isn't you know the, the cure-all, but they've done things like institute walk-in talks, and just kind of rethought what needs to be a meeting. And so part of me hopes that maybe this will be kind of impetus to make things better. But I'm just not sure. I mean, in terms of the empathetic leadership, I, I did another column on that last year. And what I heard from some experts was, once this moment passes, we will we will also see this empathy pass. <laughs> so we'll see if kind of this, this friendlier style holds up. I mean, a lot of um, a lot of employees that I talk. It's really funny. A lot of employees that I talked to who were totally overwhelmed by meetings. You know, would like just wanted to escape their meetings. When I asked them about these kind of check ins with their managers or peers, they were like, "Oh, I love those. Those are like therapy." So I don't know. Maybe maybe on both sides, people don't want to let those go. Rachel Feinzig, work and life columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.